0: beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said before, when we come to the, the book of Jonah, one of the things that we uh, often happens to us is that what's eclipsed are the things that are of most important for us to understand and to see. And it's eclipsed usually by the great fish and all the questions that surround that, where we ought to be seeing the sovereignty of God. We ought to be seeing the grace of God. We ought to be seeing the mercy of God of God the forgiveness of God the compassion of God the providential hand of God that the Lord is the one who rules and the reigns and the kingdoms of men and we see that even with Jonah's life we see that with the secondary means that God used the sailors to throw Jonah overboard and yet Jonah recognizes that God is the one who is the first cause he is the one who is ultimately in control of all things he is the one who was directing even the sailors to throw Jonah overboard. And as Jonah said, Lord, you did it. Jonah recognized who was ultimately in control of all things. Uh, we have the secondary means and we have the ultimate cause of all things, and that is the Lord. And Jonah is the one who is declaring that, recognizing that, manifesting that. And we need to see that. We need to see that even the saints of God, the prophets of God, can go astray. They can sin. They can run from the Lord. They can be rebellious. They can be disobedient in not wanting to do what the Lord calls them to do. Not wanting to do the will of God. We can do the same thing. We do do the same thing. By not listening to the will of God, which is His Word, if we ask anything according to His will, which is His Word, He hears us and we marginalize the Word. We disregard the Word. We disobey the Word. We ignore the Word. It's the same thing that Jonah is doing when the Lord tells him to go to Nineveh. He doesn't like it. He wants God to change his mind. Well, I the Lord thy God, I change not. God never changes His mind. He never repents in the sense that we think we're turning from our sin. God doesn't repent in that way. God is not a man. God doesn't live his God doesn't live and move and have his being like a man. We often think that. We often think that God is just like us and that's what the psalmist says, "You thought I was altogether just like you." And the Lord says, "If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you." He's using hyperbole. The Lord doesn't get hungry. But if he was, what are you going to do about it? There's, there's nothing that you can do about it. God is transcendent. And yet he's imminent. He is here with us as well. God is the high and lofty one. God is the one who is the assay God. He is a self existent God. He needs nothing outside of himself. God is in, not in need. I can't stand the modern theologians who say God created us because He was lonely. God doesn't get lonely. God doesn't need. He doesn't need our fellowship. He doesn't need anything. You realize that. Speak about God. God is immense. And people say, well, God is big. We worship a big God. Big is in comparison to something. With who will you liken God? With whom will you compare Him? Him? There is no comparison. There is nothing that you can compare to our God. It's like the person of Christ. He is what's called the only begotten, which is the Greek term the monogenēs. Now, break it up. The monogenēs, mono meaning one, genēs meaning genus or kind. What does that mean? Christ, the only begotten one is one of a kind. What do you do with one of a kind? What do you can compare one of a kind to? There's none like him. He can't be compared to anything else. There is nothing else like him. So to use these, these words, "Our God is big," or you know, God is lonely, He needed fellowship," and bringing him and debasing him, eclipsing his glory and making him like sinful man. That's sinful. And if we read the Scriptures, we would see, we would acknowledge, we would desire the High and Holy One. The glory of the God whom calls us to worship Him in the spirit of holiness. This is what Isaiah saw. uh, Christ, who was in the temple, was high and lifted up. As the prophets get a glimpse of the Lord, what happens? His glory is too much for them and they pronounce a woe, a curse upon themselves because He is the glorious one. When Christ appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, what happened to him? The glory of Christ burned out basically his eyes. They became scales over his eyes because of the glory of Christ that he clipped even the sun. That's the glory of the God with whom we have to do. It's not about Jonah. It's about the Lord. We often do that. We come to David and Goliath and we want to talk about, you know, get rid of the giants in your life. It has nothing to do with that. That modern contemporary preaching nonsense garbage that is not in the teaching of God's Word. It is about the glory of God using a little shepherd boy to fulfill his will and to bring glory to his name. Because David, a little shepherd boy, could not have done what he had done apart from the power and the strength that God provided. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Not us. As I said, Spurgeon, great quote. Think about this. The hardest thing for us as sinful human beings to say is not unto us, not unto us, but unto your name be glory and honor, O Lord. Why? Because we're glory robbers. We want glory. We want notoriety. We want fame. We want recognition. I want my name on a little plaque. I donated. Look, it's on the pulpit right here. My name, see? Perpetual. People can come up and see, oh, I donated the money for that. Jesus said, when you give, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that God might be honored and glorified and praised. But we like to blow a trumpet, don't we? We like to stand up and blow the trumpet and acknowledge. Do-do-do, here I come, look at what I have done. We don't say things like, you know, if not for the grace of God, there go I. And unless the Lord gave me the strength, there is no way that I would be able to accomplish anything that I have accomplished for the glory of His name. This is what we need to see. It's the God who forgives. He forgives Jonah. Jonah who is running headlong into disaster and destruction. And yet the Lord forgives Jonah and restores Jonah. Notice also... That you can never escape the Lord. God never abandons His people. Even as Jonah, where is he? He finds himself all caught up in the the belly of the great fish. And as he's being tossed and turned all about within there, and his breath is being choked out, that's what it means, the, the, the water up to my soul. It means his breath, his very breath is being snuffed out. He is in the belly of the fish and he is being disciplined. God is disciplining his prophet, his saint, his redeemed. He is bringing him to repentance. He's not destroying him. He is disciplining him. He's not punishing him. He is disciplining him. There's a difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment is legal language. Discipline is family language. God punishes all those outside of Jesus Christ. Those in Christ, He disciplines. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And so, Jonah is really in the throes of it. Tossed with seaweed all around him. The water is surrounding him. The deep is closed him in. They were wrapped around his head. You can see he is in a miserable condition. As I had mentioned last Lord's Day, you think about even having your head underwater and gasping for breath. And it seems to be the condition of Jonah at this point is that he's fighting even to breathe because he's being sloshed around all in the, the belly of the great fish. And then notice our text beginning in verse 6. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. That just simply means to the depths, to the foundations of the mountains. You know, the sea, it has a depth. It has a, an end, as it were, to the sea. It has a bottom to it. And at the bottom, Jonah is saying to the depths of the mountains, the mountains reach down the jagged portions of the earth. So in his mind, as he's viewing this, in his feeling oriented at this point, he is saying there's no escape. No matter what I do, I am hidden out of the sight of God. And there is no escape from the condition that I am in. And so that's, as I had said last time, that's what feelings often do to us. Now, again, people always bring this up to me. We have feelings. I never deny that we don't have feelings. I understand we have feelings. We have emotions. Better understood, emotions. And most of the emotions that are spoken of in Scripture, are sinful. This is what we're called to put off. Why? Because we are not thinking and being instructed by the Word, engaging the will and forming the emotive aspect of man. If you live by emotions, hear it, you're an idolater. Because you are not trusting God, you are trusting your emotions, your feelings. This is what Jonah is dealing with. We deal with it too. You and I have done just the same. We have let feelings dictate truth. We have tried to make the truth conform to the way that we feel. That's sinful. That's idolatry. We need to get rid of the idols of the heart. Beloved, uh, we have more than you think. John In 1 John 5, right at the end of his little epistle, I think it's verse 21 of chapter 5, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's saying that to the church, to the believer. It's easy for us to fall into that. When we're not informed by the Word of God, then inevitably we fall to the emotions in our life. By default, we fall into that. And then we want to think that these things are true, even though the Word of God says they aren't. Let me give you an example. Jonah in this condition, he is acting like God is not with him. God does not see him. He is out of the sight of God. Now if you know your Scriptures... Psalm 139, you know. Psalm 39 as well. The rest of Scripture teaches us. God is omnipresent. Where can I go from your Spirit? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I descend to the depths of Sheol, or the land of the dead, there you are as well. There is no place that you can go apart from the Spirit of God. Why is that? He is all present. Everywhere present. He encompasses all of the created realm. He's transcendent. He goes beyond it. But he encompasses everything within it as well. God is with us always. Jonah thinks that God has abandoned him. But if you know the word of God, you know that God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is with us always. But what if I feel that way? Well, then I'm going to tell you, repent. And get your feelings under the teaching of God's word. So that the way that I feel is instructed by the teaching of Scripture. Not by my heart. You know, when you go through problems in life, when I go through problems in life, you know what our greatest trouble and problem is? Is that we let our heart speak. Rather than speaking God's Word to our heart. That's what the psalmist does. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Dialoguing with Scripture. Put your hope in God, your confidence, your trust in the Lord. This is what we need. We need those that would come alongside and admonish us. To take the word of God and put it to us. To remind us of God's word. That's why meditation of God's word is so important. Rolling around in our mind, it speaks to us. When we sleep, it speaks to us. When we are awake, it guides us. It teaches us. So Jonah is learning this lesson. He says in verse 6, The earth and its bars closed behind me forever, and yet you have brought me up my life uh, from the pit, O Lord my God. So it seems pretty dark and dingy, and all of a sudden Jonah recognizes, before he had even come up, that the Lord is the one who brought his life up from the pit. These, beloved, are all types of Christ. Jesus is the one who ascended pit for his people. And not literally into some literal place called hell. His descent into hell was on the cross, suffering the wrath of God. But Christ went that depth for us. He suffered the wrath of God. Inexpressible anguish, pains, and terrors for his people. That is regarded as the pit. Suffering the hell for His people. And so we see that in the life of Jonah. And you notice, even as Jonah came up from the dead, as it were, from Sheol, out of the pit, it is the Lord that brought him up. Now let me speak to you spiritually. If you're alive to Christ, if you're born of the Spirit of God, it is God who has brought you out of that pit. He has brought you out of the muck and the mire of sin. He has brought you up out of rebellion. The impudency of your heart. The enmity that you had towards the Lord. God is the one who brought you up. You didn't bring yourself up. Just like Jonah in the pit as we were. As in Sheol and the bottom to the dregs to the foundation. The moorings of the earth he says. So were we dead in trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not even of yourselves, is the gift of God. It's the Lord who has brought us up out of the pit. And it's the Lord who was with us always, never to leave us or forsake us. How is your praise to the Lord For such a wondrous salvation. Jonah is being afflicted. He mentions that of the affliction that he's going through. He says in verse 2 I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. Isn't that what affliction does? You know, there's a response of human beings. When you go through affliction, trouble, and trials as a believer, built into us by the working of the spirit of God this is an aspect of our faith is a turning to the Lord you know through the teaching of God's word there is no other place to turn there is no one else to turn to but to turn to the Lord when Jesus said to the disciples do you also want to go away Peter says where are we going to go you and you alone have the words of eternal life. And we have come to know and to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's no other place to go. So the believer, because of the working of the Spirit and true faith in the heart, the Word informs the mind, inevitably turns to the Lord and cries out. We see that in the life of Job. We see that in the life of David. David. We see it with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Samuel and all the rest of the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Jonah. We see it all. They turn to the Lord. Not so with the unbeliever. The unbeliever doesn't turn to God. The unbeliever despises the Lord in his suffering. He's angry with God. He is more angry with God. He's more vociferous. He is more violent in his hatred towards God when he goes through suffering. I've seen unbelievers lose loved ones. And I'm not making a light of this. And I can't say I know what you feel. I have no idea. But I've seen unbelievers and believers alike lose children. Yes, it's got to be extremely difficult. My words don't even capture it. And some grieve in one way and some grieve in another, but we grieve. But what does the believer do? He turns, he comes full circle and he comes to the Lord and cries for mercy, for comfort. Because it's the Lord who comforts his people. What does the unbeliever do? He shakes his fist at God. He spews venom of hatred. How dare you take my kid, my child? God brings the believer to repentance. The unbeliever stays in his vile, vicious hatred and enmity towards God. And that was you and me apart from salvation in Christ. Jonah says, verse 7, When my soul fainted within me. Have you been there? I've experienced this. This is hard. This is a hard place to be. When the soul faints within. It is like he is experiencing so much trauma in the heart. That he cries out. Now he is not faint you see. Because he is crying out to the Lord. But that's the feeling that's going on. Like an earthquake in the heart. As Jesus said in the garden of Gethsemane. He said my soul is discouraged. Depressed even unto death. And that's the word that he uses. Depressed. Depression of the soul even unto death. But he said... Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. This is the trauma that goes on in the soul of a believer from time to time. Faint. Exhausted. To the point of exhaustion. That Jonah is ready to faint. But he recollects. You see, beloved, as I have said to you before about memorization and meditation. Now, you kids, I know that the ones that are in my catechism class, they don't always like that. But it's necessary. It is important. We see the principle of it right here. And you parents ought to be teaching your children how to meditate and memorize. That's the principle given in Scripture. Now, don't look to me and just say, well, that's your job. It is an aspect of my work. But primarily, it's yours. You will never get me To do your parental duties. You understand? Taking your kids to the zoo is not my responsibility. It's yours. You take them. That's what you're called to do. I will teach them and the things of God as I have occasion. But it's got to begin at the home. You've got to instruct your children in the home to raise them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. That's your responsibility. That's what you have vowed to. And my work is much more easier if you're doing your work and we're working in conjunction. But the point is, we've got to memorize and we've got to meditate. And how you memorize is by meditating on God's Word. I can remember being in a hospital room of an individual who, for so many years, a member of the church, but was not born of the spirit of God. He was a drunkard, and he was admonished and instructed and come alongside of again and again. And he had a heart attack, and he ended up in the hospital. And when I came to the hospital, he was crying because he knew that death was right around the corner. And I began reading the Psalms to him. And I just kept reading and reading. The next day, his wife came in the room. She almost had a heart attack. He was sitting in the bed reading the Psalms. She said, I've never seen that all of our marriage life. I think that the Lord caused him to be born of the Spirit of God. Right there in the hospital room. Reading the Word of God. Now, I want to say that prior to this, he had no joy. He had nothing. He had nothing to fall back on. He wasn't asking for the newspaper. I need to know this God in whom I have to do. The one who is open to all the things that I have done in my life. I need to know my Savior. Begin now. Don't wait. That's how we are, is not it? Putting it off. Oh, I got time. I got plenty of time. You don't have time. You have right now. That's all we have. Always right now. And one time that right now doesn't come, and you're dead. Job gives the principle. or uh, Jonah gives the principle. So remembering the Lord. He remembered because he knew the teaching of God's Word. He was then rehearsing God's Word in his heart. And this is what revived him from fainting. Is remembering the promises of God. You know, Martin Luther, when the Reformation began, this is one of the prayers that he prayed. When he was going to go before the Diet to the the Council, and he was going to be condemned for his teaching, and they asked him, are these all the books that you have written? And he said, yes. And they said, we want you to recant or you'll be put to death. Now, Martin Luther, you know, we, we, we have this thing in our mind to think that at that point he says, you know, my conscience is bound to the word of God and I will not and I cannot recant. He didn't say that. He said, can I have 24 hours to think about it? And in that 24 hours in the Wartburg Castle, he begins to pray and to cry out to the Lord, and crying out, saying, Lord, do you hear me? Are you dead? No, you cannot die. Why are you not hearing me? Why are you not responding to me? But notice as he's counseling his own soul. God's not hearing my prayer, my cry. I need help. I need now help. But God can't die. God hears the prayers of His people. You see, this is the principle of Psalm 42. Speaking God's Word to the heart. So if I let my heart speak, what, is God dead? Has God died? God doesn't hear me? But then when I speak the Word of God to my heart, God cannot die. God cannot lie. God cannot change. God cannot abandon His people. And then I'm revived. The fainting, as it were, begins to subside. There is reviving Again, in the life, I remembered the Lord. That's what you find with Jeremiah and lamentation. Remembering. Remembering the mercies of God. I remembered, and it changed the disposition of my heart. It changed the way that I think. It changed my actions in life. It revived me. It gave me more gas. And so he says, and my prayer went up to you. His reviving was an action, wasn't it? It wasn't a sitting by and doing nothing, it was a prayer. It was coming to the Lord in prayer, praying to his holy temple. You know, this you see this affliction, this is a good thing. Affliction is a good God has a way to turn the affliction and the trials and the difficulties, the persecution, the troubles of life into good things in the Christian's life. This is good. Jonah is reviving again. He's acting like a prophet. He's acting like a saint. He's coming to the Lord in prayer. He's casting his prayers upon the Lord. Coming to the holy temple. The place of God's dwelling. He's coming boldly, as it were, to the throne of grace. He knows intercession. He knows atonement. He is a prophet. He understands that he comes by way of atonement right into the throne of God's grace. And he casts his prayers upon him. Brother, are you going through affliction? Are you going through heartache? Are you going through difficult days? Is your soul fainting within you? Here is the prescription, the recipe of reviving. Is coming to the Lord in prayer. Casting all of your cares upon him. Because he cares for you. God cares. You don't go to people and talk to them and they don't care about you. You really don't care how much somebody knows until you know how much they care. Then you go to them. God cares. God cares about all the aches and the pains and the sorrows and the difficulties, the things that make us faint. God cares. And we have a principle here to come to Him in prayer. Jesus in the garden. What did He do? cried out to the Father. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Coming to the Lord in prayer. We are to pray always. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to pray in everything. And giving thanks to God. Jonah says, those who regard worthless idols, vain things, Putting your trust, this is the text, right? This is the context. is putting your trust and your hope in worthless things. Things that cannot save. A generic God. Superstitions. Idols of the heart. They cannot save. Idols of the heart. Oh, my obedience. If only I do this. God must be pleased because I've got idols of the heart. Beloved, they're vain. They are worthless. They cannot save. You're forsaking your only mercy. Your only mercy is Christ. Christ is the mercy of God. That God withholds the punishment which is due to us is only because of the work of Jesus Christ. When you forsake that mercy, you run by default to the idols. Man, by his fallen nature, is an idol worshiper. He must worship, but he won't worship the true and living God. He worships animals and four-footed things, creatures, beasts, the, the constellation. He worshiped the creation rather than the creator. We are made to worship. We are created to worship. We must worship. So those who regard the worthless idols, they forsake their own mercy. Don't, don't forsake that mercy. Don't teach your kids to forsake that mercy. Don't teach your kids that they're great people and God accepts them just the way that they are. Don't teach them that they can do these certain things and God will accept them. Don't teach them that God has accepted them because they've been baptized. Teach them to run to Christ, teach them that He is the only Savior, there is none other. And our hope must be in Him. Our reliance must be upon Him. Teach them what Christ has done for His people. And then cause them. Speak to them. Listen as they are speaking, engaging with you. And direct them back to the teaching of Scripture. To show them their only hope is in Jesus who says, Come, come to me. Teach them what it means to come to Jesus, to believe the promises of God, to forsake the worthless idols of this world, and to look only unto the true and living God. Jonah says, they forsake by looking to worthless things, but I will sacrifice to you. Notice the sacrifice that he's talking about. Not only does Jonah know of the animal sacrifices, but he's speaking here also of a sacrifice of his voice. This we read of in Hebrews 13. The sacrifice that's acceptable to God is a thankful voice, is praise and thanks to His holy name. This is what Jonah does. He's giving thanks to the Lord. So notice in his prayer the content of what he prays for. He prays for deliverance. He prays for help. He also prays in thanksgiving to the Lord. He prays... In, in that the Lord, he is thankful that the Lord would deliver him. He prays with a vow on his heart. So that not only would God be honored, but that he would be glorified, but that Jonah would be thankful to the Lord, and that Jonah would keep the vows in which he, he gives to the Lord. He commits to the Lord. You know, encompassing all of that, you know what you find with Jonah? You find an honesty. In honesty, it's not heard much in the Christian church today. I think a dishonesty in the Christian church today because we're too consumed with pleasing men. We're too consumed with reputation rather than character. We're too consumed of what other people think about us rather than what God thinks. Jonah is Brutally honest in his prayer. He doesn't hold things back, and neither should we when we come to the Lord. Being specific about the things of the heart. You know the the Ecclesiastes five, Solomon wrote, It's better not to vow than to vow and not keep your vow. The fool is the one who vows. And doesn't keep his vow. And be careful what you vow. Don't vow foolish things. I've heard people vow (coughs) foolish things. You've got to repent of foolish vows. Ungodly, unbiblical vows that people take. I gave you an example once of a man who vowed he would never drink alcohol again and he came and we had the Lord's Supper, we had wine. Now he had a dilemma. And when you talk to him about wine, is wine evil? Well, it's not the evil of the wine, it's the evil of the heart. And now you've made a stupid vow. Foolish. What do you do? Well, you work with them. You help them along. Obviously, there's some immaturity, so you walk with them. You help him. I've said this to reform ministers. Boy, they just about had apoplexy when I said this. But What was done with that man is that in the middle of the tray, you put some grape juice and you position him first to take the Lord's Supper and that's the one he gets and nobody else knows. You're helping the man. And you're teaching him there's nothing sinful about the wine. The sin is in your own heart. But let me walk with you. Let me walk with you through this. That's counseling individuals. So Jonah says, I will pay what I vow. And then he declares salvation of the Lord. Now keep this in context. We can deal with it spiritually. But in context, what's he talking about? Deliverance. God delivers. God delivers us out of problems and difficulties. Is salvation of the Lord, is redemption from the Lord? Absolutely. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah knew the Psalms. Psalm 3, Psalm 37 says exactly the same thing. Salvation is of the Lord. If you are redeemed, it is because of the Lord. It is the Lord's work and the Lord's work alone. He brings you into union with Himself, He brings you up out of the muck and the mire. You were dead, He made you alive. Salvation is of the Lord. In the context, Jonah is declaring that deliverance is from God. God delivers His people. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Deliverance comes from the Lord. Rescue comes from our God. Why would you cry out to anyone else? Nobody else can hear you. Jonah is in the depths and the throes. God alone can rescue him. And he declares it. It's the whole of the book, isn't it? Salvation, deliverance is from the Lord. And so the Lord spoke to the fish. God's rule and control over the created order speaks to the fish. Wouldn't it be great to be a fisherman to be able to do that? Jesus did the same thing. We've been fishing all night, Lord, and we have caught nothing. But here it is, the middle of the day. And what, is, what are they saying here? You don't fish in the daytime. When you're out on the Sea of Galilee, you fish at nighttime. What goes on at night? Well, in the cool, the nighttime comes, the bugs start to fly above the water, the fish come to the surface, and you take your nets and you scoop up the fish at night. Not during the day, that's why Peter said, We have been fishing all night, Lord, and have caught nothing. Certainly in the middle of the day, the fish are going deep into the cooler waters. And Jesus said, Cast it on the right side for a catch. And Peter says, this is, this is faith. Nevertheless, Lord, at your word. And what happens? Jesus commands all the fish of the Sea of Galilee to jump in the nets. He commands. Because Christ is God come in the flesh. The wind, the waves, the sea. He commands all of the animals as well. And it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. Vomited. There was some jolting that went on. It speaks of a violent way to vomit. You know what it means to vomit when you're sick and when you have dry heaves. I mean, this is graphic, isn't it? That's is what happened with Jonah. That fish came near the land and just barfed him up. Can you imagine? People, if there would have been anybody on the shore, and here comes Jonah flying up like a bungee jumping right up out of there. Would that have freaked you out? What would you have done? Oh, you'd be running, wouldn't you? What would Jonah look like since he was in the belly of the fish with the gastric juices? What color would his skin have been? Would his pigmentation have changed because of the gastric juices? What about his hair? What color would his hair look like? He may look like a Martian when he came out of there. But the point is, the Lord commanded, and the Lord took him exactly down to the depths of the earth and brought this affliction so that he would bring him to repentance and then spewed him out on the land right where he needed to be. You can't outrun the long arm of the Lord. You can't. So why try? This all could have been inverted by a simple confession and a repentance. You know, praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ, Jonah wasn't left in Sheol. But he was brought up out of the pit. Because of Jesus Christ, we are not left in Sheol. We have been brought out of the pit because of the one who went to the pit for us in our place. Praise Lord for his sovereign rule, compassion, his blessing, his forgiveness, his reconciliation, his providential control over all things, without which we perish. Amen. Shall we pray?